This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, last week's program, we said we might be tackling the issue of the big short in today's show. But in truth, we're not properly lined up to bring guests on and discuss that most interesting film and book. I must tell you, my dear listener, after seeing the movie, I was quite stoked and went out and powered my way through the book, and I highly recommend you consider doing the same. One thing that I think I might like to do is quote from that volume in our second segment today, and perhaps look back at Michael Lewis's other book that I previously referred to on this program, which was Boomerang. I discovered on looking to the forward of that book that he wrote it after he wrote The Big Short, which for me somehow makes the whole thing that much more frightening. The Big Short talks about what happened here during our meltdown in 07 and 08. In Boomerang, Michael Lewis took a look at what other countries did about the same time we were wrecking our economy. And uh, in many cases, they were able to wreck their economies even worse. Iceland was one of the countries uh, whose financial shenanigans got analyzed for that book. And, and I must say, to their credit, the good people over in Iceland have put something like 26 of these criminals behind bars. In America, by contrast, at least according to the movie, one person was successfully prosecuted for what went on on Wall Street. And uh, the film pointed out that what he did was what all the big guys were doing every day. And in fact, on any given day, people like Goldman Sachs did the total of what this guy did in his, what I guess were years of activity. So by God, I think I'm just going to read from uh, some of the works of Michael Lewis in our second segment today and maybe throw in a few other items while we're at it. And uh, in the third segment of today's program, take a look back, what turns out to be 45 years or so, at what... Doug Kenny was up to. Doug Kenny was a comedy genius. What he and some of his peers started with the National Lampoon magazine, circa 1970, completely revolutionized comedy, it is fair to say. In fact, that, that may even be underestimating his influence. So much of what came out of that magazine and the movies that it spawned and the various work they did in radio and stage and a little thing on television called Saturday Night Live, was nothing short of revolutionary. I'm inspired to take a look back at Mr. Kenny by a documentary which I stumbled upon on the History Channel. I was sort of absentmindedly watching Pawn Stars, which, which I do find amusing, and I was trying to go out to work out when the History Channel forward promoted the fact that they would be airing the documentary Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead the story of the National Lampoon. And so it was, I found myself glued to my chair for two hours as I watched this remarkable tale, much of which I knew, unfold. Now, the National Lampoon died a very well-deserved death sometime in the late 90s. Personally, I don't think it was funny after the mid-70s, to be honest. But for those first years in the early 1970s, man, what a path they blazed. And, uh, the main trailblazer was Mr. Doug Kenny. One of the things I think I most regret about my undergraduate years here at this great institution of UC Davis 
was that I did not attend the event in the spring of 1973, I believe. 72, actually, the spring of 1972, where Doug Kennedy came to town and put on a show. He got a rave review in the California Aggie, which really made me kick myself. And I'm still kicking myself now, to be honest. And I'm talking about all this, our, our friend in Los Angeles, uh, Don Rose, took a look at trying to find uh, the college campus tour of Doug Kenny from that era, and he was able to find an event at UCLA, which they did record for posterity. Unfortunately, Doug uh, appears to be stoned to the gills. I blame that for the fact that Considering the material he had to work with, some of the early Lampoon stuff, uh, he, he, that must be why he dropped the ball. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going on and on here, I know, but we're going to try and go back to the 70s and go over some of the stuff that made them famous and tell what I know about um, what happened to Doug Kenny. Oh, and I think there are some of you that may be surprised, pleasantly or otherwise, at the fact that Radio Parallax is continuing. Now, we still have some great guests lined up, and uh, my feeling is until we get them recorded and aired, we really can't go to being an all-podcast affair. Plus, it has been a very great pleasure to be here this past 13 and a half years, and I think I should give you one example of why that is. The most successful thing that ever came, in print anyway, out of the old National Lampoon Fun Factory was a thing, a thing called the 1964 High School Yearbook Parody. According to the documentary, Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead, this effort came about because sometime in around 1973, Doug Kenny just flipped out. He left the magazine, basically walked out the door and left everybody hanging. But fortunately, he did eventually return with his tail tucked between his legs. About that same time, the magazine had hired a new writer, which they were pretty fond of, P.J. O'Rourke. Because P.J. was the new guy and Doug was the guy in the doghouse, the two were put into this new project, which became the 1964 high school yearbook parody. When it finally hit the newsstands in 1974, I can tell you, dear listener, that uh, I spent the next three days reading it and laughing again and again so hard I, I would literally fall out of the chair. I thought it then and still think it now the funniest thing I've ever seen. Now, although Doug Kenny tragically passed away in 1980, PGR Rourke is very much still with us. You hear him on a regular basis on National Public Radio. He's been a correspondent for Rolling Stone. He's written several books, many of which are amusing. And when he wrote a book on The Wealth of Nations, as in Adam Smith's classic, The Wealth of Nations... We jumped at the chance to speak with him. That interview, by the way, is available on our archives at radioparallax.com. That I told myself if I ever got a chance to speak with him, that I would compliment him on what a great work the high school yearbook parody was. And so I did, to which he chuckled and said he had a chance to, to pick up a copy recently and said, you know, it does hold up pretty well. And indeed it does. And if you've never seen <laughs> this work... Well, my dear listener, you, you, you need to do yourself a favor and, uh, you know, fix that. Anyway, after that extraordinarily long preamble, let's start the program with On This Date in History, shall we? Our date today is the 28th of January. 
It was on January 28, 1613, that Galileo Galilei recorded a star in his observations that might have been the planet Neptune. Unfortunately for posterity, cloudy weather prevented him from further observations, and so it was that Neptune went undiscovered until 1846. Neptune's discovery was interesting in that its position had been predicted by a couple of mathematicians, and it was the astronomers looking where they were told to look that made the discovery. So who discovered it, the mathematicians or the observers? History gives it to the math people. And we'll have a little bit more to say about planetary math on today's program. It was 100 years ago today, on January 28, 1916, that President Woodrow Wilson nominated Louis Brandeis to the U.S. Supreme Court. The appointment was confirmed despite bitter opposition because, uh, well, Brandeis had been the first Jew appointed to the high court. And speaking of planets, it was on this date in 1986, January 28th, that the Voyager 2 spacecraft began making its close-up observations of the planet Uranus, which unfortunately were knocked out of the headlines by the tragic bigger news of the space shuttle Challenger exploding upon liftoff from Cape Canaveral, killing the entire crew. Let's take a detour back into the planets, the current news story about a, a ninth planet. I was amused, but I was amused to pick up the Sacramento Bee and see the front page headline saying "2015 said to be warmest year on record." Now, when you say "said to be" in a headline, it usually indicates there's a great deal of doubt or potentially a lot of doubt. And I'm just thinking, uh, is there that much doubt about 2015 being the hottest year on record? I mean, you know, you're looking at you're looking at what the thermometer says or rather what thermometers say around the world. And, you know, I think that's pretty much a slam dunk that, you know, 2015 was the hottest year on record. But oddly enough, the headline about a supposed ninth planet out there was was, was cast a, as, as a rather more certain news item. It's not. Nobody has seen this supposed giant planet, which they're saying, which they're estimating may be the size of Uranus or Neptune, which is to say pretty big. Estimates are this planet could be 2 to 5 to 15 times the size of planet Earth. Now, we tried for this program to reach Mike Brown of Caltech after reading his book, Why Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Alas, he never returned our inquiries. Mike Brown did pretty much lead the case for killing off Pluto as a planet after he discovered Eris, a body out in the Kuiper Belt, which appears to be pretty much the same size as Pluto. And he's discovered a lot of bodies out in the distant cold area around our sun. I mean, like like way, way out there. One such body, which has since been called Sedna, has an orbit, an elliptical orbit, that takes it way out into what may be the Oort cloud regions of our solar system. Way the hell out there. Sedna was discovered three times as far out as Neptune, which is roughly the same as Pluto, which is a little less than the average of Pluto. But Sedna has been found when it's in close. Apparently, when it gets out as far as it gets from the sun, it's 30 times Neptune's distance. And Mike Brown and others have subsequently discovered numerous other bodies that have similar orbits way, way out there. When they ran the numbers, they found some peculiarities about these bodies. They have similar angles to the rest of the planets, about 30 degrees below the plane of the rest of the planets. And the points in their orbit where they get closest to the sun are remarkably similar in location. 
These two facts lead Mike Brown and others to do the math and calculate that, you know, if there's a planet on the other side of, of these bodies influencing them, well, the orbits make sense. Their estimate of these two peculiarities is that the odds are about 7 in 100,000 that this could happen purely by chance. So, there may be a large planet lurking way, way out at the edge of what could be, could be considered our solar system. They just have to find it. We'll continue to follow that story. Now, I don't feel like doing the quote and the quip and all that in today's program, and I, maybe I've just talked too much here in the first segment to do that, but you know, we'll make it up to you in future installments of the show. That's easy to do. But I know some will squawk if I don't do the good, the bad, and the ugly, so let's do a bit of that. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for, I guess you'd say, 30-somethings and 40-somethings, with the news that a new study found that the midlife crisis may not be a true psychological phenomenon and that most people are actually happier in their 40s than they were at 18. I think the good news in this item is tempered by the fact that, well, think of how happy you were at 18 and ask yourself how hard it is to... Get above the level of where that bar is set. Doesn't seem that hard. And as to whether a midlife crisis is not a real psychological phenomenon, well, I uh, would offer the opinion that it is not necessarily an inevitable psychological phenomenon, but based on what I observed in others, not myself, of course, but what I observed in others, uh, I would say that it uh, sometimes is very real. We'll leave leave it go at that. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for sex education with the news that the University of Southern California had to apologize for its requiring all students to detail their sexual histories in a training program on sexual consent. This mandatory online class included specific questions about students' sexual frequency, number of partners, and condom use. After students objected... (laughs) Wow, yeah. After students objected, the university apologized for any offense or discomfort. It was, on the other hand, an ugly week for Republican attitudes about sex, with the news that a Republican lawmaker in Olympia, Washington, shocked a group of teenage girls who were lobbying for Planned Parenthood. He asked them whether they were virgins. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. She asked them if they were virgins. State Representative Mary Dye, who is evidently opposed to giving teens access to birth control, admitted that her well-intended comments about sex may have been too motherly. One student called Dye's questions about the student's virginity kind of insane, which frankly I think sums up a lot of Republican attitudes about sexual matters. Of course, I do stress that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily reflect those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover in our second and third segments. I think, I just have so much material in front of me, but an agenda. We're going to look at uh, Michael Lewis and a look at Doug Kenny, I guess you might say. But let's also take a look before we do that at what Will Durst has on his mind. 
Hey, guys. Will Durst here to say you had to love Ted Cruz telling Donald Trump that the rest of the country was concerned about his alarming New York values totally ignoring the greater danger of the real estate developer's aerodynamic quaff toppling over and knocking innocent supporters unconscious with its hard candy shell. But is it fair to make sweeping generalizations solely based on longitude and latitude? Well, yeah, it is. And besides New York, what other cliches can our little minds instantly make when presented with specific locales? Glad you asked. New Hampshire values believe in not just the electric chair, but the electric bleachers. New England Patriots values mean doing anything and everything to win, including the blurring of boundaries that lesser competitors might consider the rules. New Yorky values involve a lot of yipping and the sound of toenails scratching on the linoleum. New Jersey values are almost exactly like New Yorky values, but with bigger hair. New balance values take into account sneakers and sneaker accessories. Washington, D.C. values are a mix of New Yorky values and New England Patriots values. Texas values mostly have to do with barbecue guns and executing people, not necessarily in that order. Wisconsin values are totally measured in how the Green Bay Packers are doing, and cheese. Arkansas values are more family-oriented and totally understand that fathers can be uncles at the same time. San Francisco values are indicative of a tolerance for almost anything, except the intolerant, that we cannot abide. Berkeley values are not as restrictive as San Francisco values. Madison values are similar to Berkeley values, but mitigated by snow and cheese and the Packers. And Maine values are none of your business. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. He is America's foremost political comic, and we hope the good people up in Chico enjoyed him last Friday. Unfortunately, this correspondent was unable to make that 90-mile jaunt north, but I assume all went well. Usually does when Durst is up there on the stage. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a break. (music) 